Let me pray. God, You are gracious. You are a Father who gives good gifts. More than we can ask or imagine. Lord, I simply ask that You would tear down the walls of our hearts. Tear down the walls of our minds. And Lord, that You would send Your Spirit yet again uh, to breathe new life. Have mercy on us and speak truth abundant. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, tonight we are going to be in uh, perhaps an unfamiliar uh, book to some of you, but we will be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, it is in your bulletin there, but you're free to follow along as you like. Recently, I stumbled onto a song uh, that resonated in an unusual space. And the story really is not about the song itself, but about the people who are singing. And in many ways, their chorus seems strange, even misplaced. Now, the people are uh, many of the citizens of Hong Kong who are currently protesting a bill that, very much in short, appears to be infringing upon their rights. Now, we're not talking about a small contingency of people. We're not even talking about a couple thousand. We're talking about two million people marching in the streets of Hong Kong. Two million people who fear that China is gaining unmerited control. Two million people who are fighting for their dignity. But many are not fighting with weapons, but with a song. A song that for many has become a, uh, a quasi-anthem for many in this pro-democracy movement. The song may be familiar to many of you. It goes like this. Sing hallelujah to the Lord. You're free to sing along if you like. Sing hallelujah to the Lord. Sing hallelujah. Sing hallelujah. Sing hallelujah to the Lord. Now in the midst of all this unrest, in this striving for justice, we find a song, a song that interestingly enough is, is sung in a minor key, which there's something about that that reveals to us this idea that God is working, but we're yet to see it, His work fully realized. We often refer to that as the already and the not yet, that God already is working, but we have yet to see His full glory realized. And, and as I... As I clicked through and, and on different links about this story, uh, I, got a, I got a good chuckle out of one protester's sign that said, stop using baton or we sing hallelujah to the Lord. <laughs> now, it, it would be easy to dismiss these citizens as Christians who are simply building a barrier to fortify themselves from the evils of the world. But that doesn't seem to be the case here. There is something about their identity as Christians that cannot be separated from this injustice. This corporate voice is the sound of longing and of hope. And perhaps regardless of how this thing turns out, that their feet really do stand on a firmer foundation. Their eyes really are set on something that is more sure and more lasting. Where are we tonight? Even as we just think about this room. Who are we? Where are we? 
I think about my brothers and sisters from Sri Lanka who just recently, just on April, or in April, on Easter, uh, there was a series of bombings around the country where hundreds of people were killed. I think about the persistence of racism in our city and our country against people of color. I think about children being imprisoned and treated unfairly at the border. I think about the poor conditions of our schools. Addiction, loneliness, mental illness, sickness and death, broken families, angry, even violent discourse on social media, questions of identity and sexuality. All these things seem to overwhelm us. And I look at the world around it. I look at the world around us and I feel sadness, I feel anger, I feel confusion. But then I examine my own heart and I find apathy, I find doubt, cynicism, unbelief, I even find self-contempt. What are we to do with all this? And can we even find room in our life to speak the words of Psalm 119:16 that says a Uh, uphold me according to your promise that I may live and let me not be put to shame in my hope. How are we supposed to be? Well, I believe our passage tonight, this passage from 1 Thessalonians 5, reminds us of who we are and where we are heading. And the Apostle Paul was writing to new Christian converts in this city these, these Christians who were suffering in a place not, that wasn't very small. Thessalonica uh, was a thriving city. And his primary aim in this letter is comfort. He's wanting to enter in uh, to their lives to comfort them and encourage them. He wants to assure them of their status before God and of their hope in the resurrected Jesus who is coming again. Let's read our passage. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation." For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. The Word of the Lord. I want to encourage us and engage this passage in two ways. Very simply, God gives us hope and God gives us help. God gives us hope and help. First, if you look at the first five verses, 
uh, in many ways, Paul is setting the stage here. He's looking at this God who gives us hope. He begins by, this, by saying this, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Now Paul here is echoing the words of Jesus in Acts 1-7. We've been in the book of Acts for a while. It's been a while since we've been in chapter 1. But what is happening is uh, Jesus' disciples come to him and they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. How encouraging. Paul is addressing an understandable concern here. These new Christians are overwhelmed. Perhaps they're confused about how to live and wondering when Jesus will return to make things right. And then Paul, his response is really one of emphasis and of contrast. He really wants to emphasize to them, hey, pay attention. You know, I read last night, or maybe today, I've been reading the Narnia series with Benjamin, my son, and there's this part where Aslan is left, and someone says, when, he's coming, when, when, when are you coming back, Aslan? He says, it's always soon. Pay attention. Then he says, cling to what you know to be true. And he's also dealing with contrast. The contrast between believer and unbeliever, between light and darkness, between being awake and being asleep. But again, his aim is comfort. A comfort that points to the hope which God gives. And uh, he unpacks this, this idea of hope uh, with two, two phrases. The first is the day of the Lord. And the second is children of light or children of the day. First, the day of the Lord. When you see this phrase, the day of the Lord, throughout Scripture, it carries a lot of weight. Its meaning and its aim working throughout the entire biblical narrative. A theologian named Paul House defines it this way, very briefly. The day of the Lord is God's decisive intervention, either to judge or to save. So we, you go all the way back to Genesis. You see the giving of God's law a little bit later on. And then its connection to other major themes and events in, in the salvation, salvation history of the Bible. We see this reality of the day of the Lord. Now perhaps this is a strange thing for Paul to bring up if he's wanting to encourage him. How can his people find hope in something like God's decisive judgment? Well, I think ultimately he is pointing to God's promise to make all things right asserting a justice which we all seek, but that doesn't just depend on some disembodied premise or just this vague appeal to doing good, but it's rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul's understanding of the Lord, of the day of the Lord, really is the day of the Lord Jesus. That's what Paul means. A day that will come suddenly, when Jesus comes, as we see in the language of, a th of, of the thief, which you see that language in the Gospels, especially in uh, Luke 21, and then in the language of labor pains. Sorry to the, the, those pregnant in our midst. But the question remains, if we don't know when this day is coming, what do we do? How are we to be? Well, Paul first addresses uh, the Thessalonians' identity. 
verses 4 and 5, but you are not in darkness, for you are all children of light, children of the day. I try, well, I do, I hope, tell my kids every day that I love them. But this is how I do it. I say, Benjamin, or Annalise, or Amos, he's nine months, but he's so wise. Uh, I say, I love you. I love you too, Dad. Why do I love you? Because I'm your son. Because I'm your daughter. I, say, I try to say it every day. Which it's, it's a little bit different from when I say, okay, guys, uh, what does sugar do to you? Makes us crazy. Uh, I've built that into our lives too. I don't know if that's a good thing. But why do I love you? Because I'm your son. I want them to know that they are loved not because they behaved well or they did their chores or they were respectful. I want them to know that they are loved because they are mine. And Paul is saying to the Thessalonian people that this is who you are. You've been transformed in such a way that the core of your identity cannot and will not be taken away from you. And in fact, the language that Paul uses here concerns a result. Which means that because you are a child of light, you will be ready for the day of the Lord. Because you are a child of light, that will result in your readiness for the day of the Lord. Now, ours seems to be a culture of growing anxiety and fear and worry. We are overwhelmed by the world around us. We are overwhelmed by the chaos in our own hearts. And I think we as Christians often wrestle with this idea of assurance. Have I done enough? Am I a strong or good enough Christian? Which that language drives me crazy. But, and perhaps buried beneath this relentless preoccupation is a fear of losing our salvation. This fear of suddenly falling out of favor with God. Of suffering that inevitable disappointment. I often find myself saying, you know, I believe that God loves me. I just don't, I'm not sure He likes me. But Paul would look me in the eyes and say, you are a child of light. I don't know if he would say it that aggressively, but maybe he would. And I just think about, I mean, I, I almost need to stand in the mirror and just say, you are a child of light. And it's beautiful, because there will be moments when I'm spending time with you, I bet there will be a moment where I say, you're a child of light. I know it doesn't feel like it, but that is what you are. Now again, Paul is dealing with contrast here, and I love the way he takes the idea of this day of the Lord and our identity as child of light, and he sets it against this illusion of security. In verse 3 he says, and this is in the wake of this sudden judgment, while people are saying there is peace and security. Well, earlier on in the letter, in chapter 1, Paul writes, of how the Thessalonians turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
And it's here we find this striking contrast between cultural reverence and this distinctive call to worship the true and the living God. And in fact, in, in that passage in, in Thessalonians 1, the word he uses there for idol can also mean phantom. Like something that just fades or passes away. And what's interesting is that Paul is speaking in a culture, in a city that is thoroughly religious. Thessalonian life was overflowing with the presence of political and economic and communal or or relational gods. And for the Greco-Roman person, it appeared he could thrive through compartmentalization as long as there remained a pursuit of peace and virtue. Now for the Christian, our thriving is not one of just mere morality or of pleasure-seeking, but a pursuit of holiness. A pursuit that may threaten the compartments we've established in our lives. Whether they are political or economic, you name it. For the Christians here, their their being a light was a symbol of hope. Especially in the context of the coming Lord. So while these familiar religious practices were applied across various parts of daily life, the Gospel presented a new and even threatening religious identity. One that was distinctive in its worship and its practice. It's my dad. Don't worry. I'll call him back. (laughs) Paul is exposing the illusion of idolatry. Of all that we, in which we place our hope to satisfy us. I imagine if, if we examine our own hearts, you're going you're gonna to find things where you say, peace and security. This is what I'm after. But suddenly it starts to crumble and you feel like, wait, I, I'm tired. You are a child of light. And as Paul transitions into the next uh, section, verses 6-11, through 11, he's saying, you are a child of light. Now live this way. And again, this isn't condemnation. It's not strong-arming. He's encouraging them. It would be easiest, easy for us to say, oh, we've got to remember who we are. Oh, good luck. Thanks, God. Now what do I do? No, God helps us. So He's given us hope, and this is how He gives us help. I was reminded of a, a brief passage in a book by John Steinbeck, uh, who wrote Grapes of Wrath, um, East of Eden, The Hunger Games. Uh, <laughs> The language is so different, but it's so existential. Um, but he wrote this small book called Cannery Row. And, and in this book, there's this, this brief uh, conversation between two characters about a man named Henry who's building a boat. Doc is one of the guys talking about this. He's nuts, but nuts about the same amount we are, only in a different way. He's been building that boat for seven years that I know of. Every time he gets it nearly finished, he changes it. Starts over again. I think he's nuts. Seven years on a boat, you don't understand. Henry loves boats, but he's afraid of the ocean. Now, I think for many of us, uh, hope is is this vague thing. It's really hard for us to grasp. We are nuts, so to speak. Building and rebuilding our boats because we are terrified of life. We are terrified of the of what Jesus might be calling us to. But we are not left to sail the shifting waters of our culture and our lives alone. 
God helps us. He helps us in two ways. He gives us Christ, and He gives us community. Verses 8 and 9, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus. The imagery of the breastplate and the helmet here in verse 8 comes from Isaiah 59, which we read earlier. God put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head. But Paul, interestingly enough, shifts the language from God to His people. That the language moves from describing God wearing these things to describing the people of God being clothed in these things. Well, how are we clothed? Ephesians 2, beginning in chapter 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is foundational to our understanding of what Paul is doing here. Because a holy God, a God who makes uh, decisive uh, judgments, has reconciled us to Himself through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ alone, in whom we have sure righteousness. And as Ephesians 1-3 through says, in whom we have every spiritual blessing. You are a child of light. And while others may be moving in the direction of wrath, our vigilance rests on the guarantee we have in Christ. So He gives us Christ. Secondly, He gives us community. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Guys, we need each other. We need to listen. We need to empathize, to challenge, to encourage to resist the temptation to quickly retreat to our preferred uh, politics or convictions, to strive for a love of our neighbor that reveals the beauty and diversity of Christ and His kingdom. To truly understand the, the urgency of Christ's coming. To understand who we are as children of light. We need to exist in community. Earlier this week, I sent an email to a handful of people just explaining a little bit of what my sermon was going to be about. And I just said, what does the coming Christ mean for you? In other words, if, if Christ is coming again, it can't just be this thing we just sit around and twiddle our thumbs. It's something that has an active presence in our lives. Whether we're creating or building or being in relationship. The coming Christ matters for our lives today. And I'm just going to read uh, some responses. And when I say, when, when the, me and the, my, the me and the my's are not me, these are the people who have responded. So, what does the coming Christ mean for you? The end of my doubt and cynicism. 
the end of pain and suffering and perhaps an understanding of how God was working amidst the suffering. Entrusting my direction, my abilities, jobs, finances to God's care. Being challenged to align my views according to the welfare of the community, not just my own gain and advancement. That my heart would reflect what the kingdom of God will look like. It gives me a greater awareness of what my hope is in. Where my peace and security is. Knowing the hope of Christ gives me courage to continually living where I am. As a single, never married, childless woman, I have not experienced a lot of the transitions and markers my friends and family have. Hoping in Christ has meant that with or without some of these markers, some of which I desire very much, my life has purpose and meaning and goodness. Jesus is better than marriage, and our community continually reminds me of of that while I walk through a season of singleness. I know the beauty of committed relationships and family through the relationships of my friends and church communities. Career, Career failures or successes are not the defining factors of my worth and identity. Realizing that having a family on this earth now is not the goal, but growing my eternal family is. In singleness, in our culture, we can be convinced that life is not full without a nuclear family. But with the church family and God as my Father, I am still a part of a much greater family that will be reunited one day. Knowing justification will come, I don't have to be angry when our justice system fails. I especially see this in my job with child abuse cases and feel hopeless. However, there is hope for justice, for the evil in the future. There's more that I'd like to read, uh, but I'm going to pass for now. Friends, this is your community who in the midst of struggle are striving for a more just and beautiful community and beautiful world who are resting not in their achievements, but in the beauty and the hope the mystery of the Gospel. I began with a song. Uh, you know, I think it came out of the 1970s Jesus movement. Uh, I remember as a kid singing this verse. And, and though I, I think the theology of it's a little clunky. Uh, you didn't think you'd hear clunky tonight, did you? Um, better than chunky. Um, uh, we believe that, that, that Christ is not coming to snatch us up and take us somewhere, that, somewhere else, but that Christ is coming to bring a new heavens and new earth. Uh, so I just don't want you to be confused. and I'm just, I just want to be faithful to the, the original song. I'm going to close with this. He's coming back to take us home. He's coming back to take us home. He's coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back to take us home. We pray for us. Oh God, would you help us? Uh, would you uh, help us to just come back and say, uh, in Jesus? Uh, I have what I need and it can't be taken away. 
We are children of light. And Lord, would You continue to place people in our lives uh, to build us up, to show us how big and how good You are. Be gracious to us, O Father. In Jesus' name, Amen.